calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The Max Quick series is now available as ebooks in the iPhone App Store. Twenty five Sun and Sand Max crossed through the shimmering distortion of the arch with Ian, dread packing his innards. What had he done? The pyramid of the arches filled Max's immediate vision. He felt sick, dizzy. Reality had a jittery, ragged quality to it. But this had nothing to do with the arch. The world inside of his head was a gyre of pain and fear. What had he done? He barely noticed when Ian cried out. Ian's shout was like something heard through a faraway tunnel. Ian savagely jumped up the walls and threw a series of gravity shifts to an arch before which Casey and Sasha both lay still, unmoving. Sasha! Casey! he yelled checking both for pulses. Blood dripped down the side of Casey's head, matting her straw-yellow hair with a panic of red. The arch before them was utterly dark. Blue energy bolts crackled at intervals inside of this darkness, as though this arch were broken, malfunctioning. Some kind of accident had occurred here. Max watched numbly from the ground below. He realized that he should be moving, following Ian up there. Vaguely, he wondered why he wasn't. His gaze dropped down to the arch showing the Hawaiian sugarcane field. Where there had just been one crow, there were now several crows sitting on the ground. They were staring at him. Like a man hypnotized, Max walked towards them. Several more crows flew into the scene and alighted next to the others. Ian cradled Sasha's head, shaking her, desperately trying to wake her up. Sash! Sash! Wake up! But Casey stirred first. She groaned. Her eyes fluttered briefly, and Ian saw it. Ian gently set Sasha's head down and helped Casey sit up. Casey, Ian said. Thank God you're all right. I thought you two were dead for a moment there. Can you understand me? Casey nodded slowly. Yeah, she said. We're okay, Ian, both of us. She'll wake up in a second. Ian looked at Casey quizzically. How could she possibly know that? But just as Casey predicted, Sasha's eyes opened as if an enchantment had been lifted. 
Her gaze sprang outward, awake. Mmm, she said, and then spotted Ian. Ian, what are you doing here? Ian went to her and threw his arms around her. Sasha, he said, burying his face in her hair. Weakly, she returned his embrace. What happened? Ian asked them both after a moment. Did the arch go haywire and zap you too unconscious or something? Casey nodded. Yeah, she said. You could say that. So you, you didn't actually go through, Ian said, looking up now at the busted arch. Little jolts sizzled inside of it like a severed electrical line. We're no closer to finding Anki. Ian, Sasha said, rubbing her head. Casey and I, we did go somewhere, just not where we thought we were going. Something happened to both of us. Ian was about to ask what when Casey tugged his shirt, pointing. Hey, what's Max doing down there? Max stood slack before the arch, as if it were a portal of personal doom. His eyes were empty, hopeless, and silent. He was beyond terror, beyond horror. He had transcended these things into a kind of numbness, a shell of nihilism. If nothing mattered, then he was safe from all the bad things that were happening. And when Ian, Casey, and Sasha climbed down and got near enough to see what held Max so transfixed, even they felt their hearts quail. The arch was now utterly filled top to bottom with crows. They were packed into the sugarcane field scene, flapping, cawing, surging. Beaks, eyes, and oil-black feathers. The entire arch was now a solid wall of squirming crows. But they were not really crows. All of them knew that. It was just as Gustav had explained. Perception happened in the mind. If the mind had no way to deal with a certain phenomenon, if it had no internal model to map it against, it either edited it out entirely or filled in the blanks, made it comprehensible somehow. Such was the case with Archons. They only looked like crows because they were actually incomprehensible. The density of the crows somehow continued to increase. The wall of living bird breathed, expanding, contracting, and then expanding more fully with each breath. The crows were beginning to swell across the threshold of the arch and into the very pyramid of the arches itself. In a moment, a few more breaths, and they would break through. Max! Ian shouted. Get away! You have to get away from that arch! But Max didn't listen. He gave no sign that he was even aware of Ian or Casey or Sasha. He stood there, slack, empty. One crow only was still. It was the same crow who had first stood in the arch when they had departed. While its fellows writhed manically around him, he remained cold and gathered, still. He spoke to Max, and Max alone. Hello again, Max, the voice of the crow said. Max recognized it immediately. It was the voice of the man, or the archon, in the golden box, the one he had spoken to through the whispering stone. Didn't I say the machine had a terrible purpose, and that it would be accomplished? And you tried to fight us exactly as we wished you to. Bravo! Bravissimo! I told you that you would help us, whether you wanted to or not. The voice continued, laughing with a ghastly chuckle. And we always get our way in the end. The wave burst. A monsoon of crows flooded the Pyramid of the Arches. Ian, Casey, and Sasha fell to the floor, screaming. But Max stood perfectly silent, perfectly still, as the torrent washed over him. 
The crows did not touch him. They were pleased with him. They flowed around him as if he were a stone in a black stream. Then the horrid torrent, the cloud of feathers and beaks and claws, shunted it to hundreds of different directions at once, like a river of inky sludge splitting, dividing, and splitting again. Each of these dark tributaries headed for an arch, madly thrumming over the threshold of each without a pause. The sheer density of the crows strained these portals through the fabric of space and time in a way that they had never meant to be taxed. The arches vibrated and shivered in protest, barely able to accommodate the raving birds as they packed every single cubic inch of space with pure crow passing through their event horizon. What had he done? This horrific flood continued unabated for several minutes before it finally began to ebb. And when it did, Ian got to his feet, trying to comprehend what had just occurred. The Archons, he whispered, they've gone through every arch in the pyramid, into all times and places. But why? Listen to me, Casey said, grabbing Ian with intensity. We know what they are. The Archons, I mean. They're fear, alive fear. Fear that's taken on a life of its own. Incarnate fear. They need us, Ian. They need us to advance their agenda. Blackthorn was... She stopped herself. She didn't have time to explain Blackthorn to Ian. What did you do back in 1912? What happened? What did you do? What had he done? Max shook his head. He opened his mouth to speak, but, but no words came. A tear fell down his cheek. Max, the machine, he... Oh, no. Oh, no. He put his hand up to his mouth, stuffing the back of his hand inside to stop the sobbing, now beginning to rack him. Sasha and Casey looked at each other with savage worry. What is it, Ian? Sasha asked, perhaps a little too harshly. But Ian had no words. He couldn't speak. His body shook with the effort of containing his sorrow. Oddly, that was when the sound of two kazoos filled the cavern. They sounded a fanfare, like a trumpet meant to announce a king, but they sounded comical, as if in a cartoon. Casey, Sasha, and Ian turned to find the source of the sound. Two small men, one dressed completely in black, the other completely in white, both wearing turbans, stood on either side of the arch in front of Max, each playing a black and white kazoo, respectively. The white and black magicians? When they'd finished... A tall, thin man stepped through the arch. He wore a dashing, dark, three-piece suit, something that immediately struck Ian as Savile Row. His long white beard had been neatly trimmed, and his long white hair was tastefully tied back behind his head. He had a healthy, ruddy tan like an outdoorsman's, and angel eyes of fire and tinsel. He held a long golden cane, topped with an ivory elephant head that sparkled and gleamed. He smiled a broad smile, with teeth white and straight as a television star's, and he exuded a deep, raw, potent, primal power, as if he had stepped fresh from the very core of the Dreamtime itself. The man spoke, quoting dramatically, And when Pandora had let the ills of the world loose from the box, the last thing set free was... Hope! They could hardly believe their eyes. Mr. E... The magicians resumed playing their kazoos as he spoke. "'You can stop that noise now, you know,' Mr. E said to them irritably. Sheepishly, they both lowered their instruments. 
Mr. E? Casey said in amazement. Casey, Sasha, and Ian walked towards him as if he were a dream. No, the man bellowed. They jumped back a step. And yes. They stared at him in bewilderment. Well, I am Enki, and I am Mr. E. We are no longer separate beings. All that Mr. E knew and was, I know and am. And all that Enki knew and was, I know and am. I went and retrieved him. His purpose was served. We are fused. We're a mashup, as Ian might say. Ian blinked. He almost felt a smile coming on. Enki suddenly looked down at Max. He hadn't moved at all. He was shell-shocked, slack, distant, broken. You, Enki said in a low voice. You. Oh, you're going to be like this for a bit, I suppose, and there's nothing for it. So I won't waste my time on you. Enki strolled past Max as if he weren't even present, towards Casey, Sasha, and Ian. In the Food Universe parking lot, Ian began. You were... Yes, Enki nodded, a trace of pain creasing his brow. I was not myself. I was hanging by a thread, but I am restored. What happened to you? Sasha asked. Casey and I, we tried to find you, to follow you, but we... Yes, 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 Enki said impatiently, holding up a hand. I know all about it. Arturo Jip, Cody, Logan, Blackthorn. Ian looked at Sasha and Casey quizzically. So far as he knew, they hadn't gone anywhere. They'd been unconscious. Which reminds me. I have certain things of yours. He reached into his coat and withdrew two gun belts, handing one to Casey and the other to Sasha. Ian marveled at the splendor of the pistols. The guns shone like mystical weapons. The white rose and the red rose, Hanky said solemnly. They are yours and are now returned to you. But, Casey said, eyes full of amazement, staring at the gun that had become as familiar to her as her own hand. But I thought that was a dream. Uh, I mean, it wasn't real. We were knocked out. Our churro jip wasn't really anywhere. These things... The world is a dream, Enki said. These things are as real as anything else. Will you look at them now and tell me that they are unreal? Will you wish them away? No, Casey and Sasha said in unison, taking them and quickly strapping on the gun belts as if Enki might snatch them away at any moment. There, Enki nodded in approval. That's better. Enough of this simpering and spitting hairs over what is real and what is not. He opened his mouth as if to say something, but then stopped in confusion, looking them over and said, Are you two taller? Casey started for a moment and then said, Well, yeah, it's been five years since we last saw you. Enki stared for a moment and then said, Hmm, and then turned towards Ian, who was staring at him still in wonder. What? Enki demanded in a voice that made Ian jump. Uh, what? Uh, I, I don't know, Ian stammered. Yes, Ninty, Enki said, softening a bit. How was she? Did she seem well? She is. Uh, she, well, that is to say, she was. Yes, a little bitter. Angry with me still after all this time. But she took good care of you. She told you everything she knew. And no, I can't get that infernal ring off your hand, you English fool. Romani was right. You stuck your hand in the cookie jar, and now you will have to live with the cookie. Now it was Casey and Sasha's turn to look at Ian in astonishment. Both of their eyes dropped involuntarily to his hand. The green emerald throbbed on Ian's finger, making him feel naked. The pyramid of the arches shuddered as with an earthquake. The scenes in all the arches began moving. It was as though the portals were now rushing across the scenes they showed in a helicopter. They sped forward, churning across their varied landscapes at a dizzying pace. Enki eyed the ceiling nervously. 
Well, Chatty, nice to see you catching up time is now officially over. The Pyramid of the Arches is collapsing. We'll have to leave, now. He sprang into motion with that same panther speed he had shown, even broken in the Starland Food Universe parking lot. Hurriedly, Anki grabbed Max by the arm and yanked him into motion, waving for the magicians Sasha, Ian, and Casey to follow. This one, Anki bellowed, head nodding towards a nearby arch. Rock crumbled around them. The ground lurched as if they were on the back of a great worm. Soot blasted through cracks that appeared in the stone. One arch cracked in two and fell, the scene within it withering and going out like a candle blown by a strong wind. Struggling to keep their feet under them, they ran behind Anki and the magicians. Max followed, allowing himself to be dragged forward in a stunned topor. Hunks of rock began falling at all angles, some down, some sideways, some even upwards as the gravity shifts in the pyramid caught them and pulled the raining rubble in several directions at once. The ground split into jagged points. Ian yelped in surprise and jumped to avoid the gaping maw that had appeared beneath him. Then a cromlech jutted up in front of Sasha, a finger of stone rudely and ruthlessly ejected from the earth. She spun athletically around it in the nick of time, making sure her guns did not shake free. Then finally, they ascended a short stair and passed the threshold of the arch almost as a single clump. The scene it showed was a beach scene, the same one, Casey noted, that it had seemed that Arch 53 had originally shown before it had malfunctioned, or whatever had happened to propel them into the jip. Except now, this arch panned over the beach, racing madly along a shoreline in a way that was utterly incongruous with its otherwise peaceful-seeming surroundings. Holding her breath, Casey jumped. They arrived, tumbling across the sand, bouncing across the beach as the moving arch deposited them in a line one at a time, moving like the wind. When Casey rolled to a stop, she looked up just in time to see a shimmering distortion shaped like a sphere rolling in the air just ahead of her. It continued on its path for a few more seconds, and then abruptly shifted directions, rolling out across the open sea. It sped onwards towards the horizon of water, before finally becoming too small even to see. Sitting on her knees, Casey caught her breath for a moment, and then, to her surprise, she was lifted to her feet by Max. They met eyes for a moment, and neither one said anything, and then Casey lurched forward into his arms as he grabbed her. He sobbed and sobbed, his body shaking, as if even the world were not big enough to absorb his release of pain. Anki started a fire in the beach as the daylight waned. They all sat around it, warming themselves. The waves tumbled in frothy white shards nearby, while the sun set in a fiery orange. The Archons are sentient fear and hatred, as Casey discovered. That is their true nature, Anki began wearily, throwing more wood in the flames. They have always existed in the dream time, since time began. But therein lies their problem. All that is, already is. They have nowhere to grow. They are trapped and can only gnaw away at themselves. Time cannot be altered, and thus they are imprisoned. Enki hung his head for a long moment. Long have they desired to expand their constraints, but they cannot do so alone. They have no power except that which beings like us give them. And so they conceived a plan. This plan was to cause one of our number to come into existence, someone powerful enough to help them break through their natural confines. In this they succeeded. This was, as you discovered, Anlil of Nibiru, my own half-brother. 
Enki threw a warm glance at Max, who sat in the sand, cross-legged, withdrawn again into his own pain, not looking at anything in particular. But they needed his cooperation. At first, they believed that if they raised this being from an infant, influenced him from an early age, that they could control him. In this, they were foiled by my father, Anu, who hid the child. Anu grew up beyond their reach, developing a personality and will all his own. But the Archons discovered their error. They discovered that the boy Anlo was here on Earth. All was not lost after all, they thought. The project, the boy, was alive. Then they conceived of the pocket as a way to locate him, so that they could try again to manipulate him into doing their bidding. And thus the machine, thus everything they subsequently set into motion. They knew that Max would resist them, fight them. Therefore they chose a plan which took this into account. They even relied upon it, using it as a cornerstone of the machinations. Then they encouraged Max to discover his power at every turn. And then finally, the machine was a Dreamtime device, so powerful that it could not be rescinded without withdrawing a fundamental support, a very strong groove, if you will, in the dream of the universe. In the same way that some cancers cannot be removed from the body without destroying a vital organ, so the machine could not be removed without likewise collapsing the support of which I'm speaking. And that support was the invaluable nature of time, what Siren called the tyranny of the page. That history cannot be altered, but now, now it can be. And this is the goal the Archon sought, the freedom to alter history. But why? Ian asked. They feed on fear, on hate, as I have said. With a static timeline, there is only so much of this for them to consume. The universe is only so big, it lasts only so long. They were at the limits of what they could consume. They were starving, if you will. But if they could alter time, reshape history, they could pack more fear, more misery, and more hatred into every moment. So they could grow. So that they could expand. So that they could fill the very one with everything that is dark and undesirable. But in short, the tyranny of the page is no longer absolute. Anki poked at the fire with a heavy sigh. So that's why the Archons fled through the arches into every time, Ian said. They're changing history, right now. Everywhere, every when. Anki nodded. So this place, this beach, Casey said, looking around at the sand and into the forest beyond the shoreline. We don't even know where it is, or even when it is. But that doesn't even matter. The timeline of this world around us could be completely altered beyond recognition by now. Yes, Anki replied simply. But hang on a minute, Ian said. Everything that happened to us in 1912 happened in a way that was consistent with the present we already knew. I mean, the Titanic sank. Petunia was saved. The shopping cart. All of it. Not to mention that the Archons haven't, like, gone and erased us from existence. That's uh, a little complicated, Anki said, searching for a way to explain. Events leading up to the destruction of the machine had to remain ordered, consistent. Petunia had to be rescued. The Titanic had to sink. And that shopping cart had to end up in the pyramid, so it would be there when you four arrived during the time of the pocket. This is why you see impeccable timeline consistency in everything. That is, right up until the moment Max destroyed the machine. And then, and only then, you begin to see historical drift. Oh, just a little bit at first. That sinkhole opening up in New York, for example. 
That was one change. That was something that hadn't happened in the old timeline. You even said something was wrong, Ian, remember? You felt that the longer you remained in 1912, the more historical drift would start to occur around you. Perhaps so much so that the Pyramid of the Arches might even be erased from existence before you could return. And it was. You got back just in the nick of time. And then there were greater changes. The Pyramid of the Arches was destroyed, and before the time of the pocket. Hence, the Pyramid will not be there on that fateful April 8th in this timeline. That was a more drastic bit of historical drift. Ian scratched his head. But, okay, when we were back in Starland, before all this happened, from our point of view, back then, in the future, Max would go back into the past and destroy the machine, if you follow. So, before we even left, the Archons must have already had this ability to alter history, because Max was destined to go back and destroy the machine. In, in fact, by that line of reasoning, they've always had it. Isn't that right? Ah, Enki said, holding up a finger. Not exactly. This has less to do with what you think of as classical time travel in a scientific sense, and more to do with a matter of consciousness. Your friend Dr. Gustav told Max about something he called the prism. When your attention... Bah, I hate that word. It is too coldly clinical. Rather, let us say, when yourself, your soul, is focused on a particular part of the prism, you experience it. In this way, our consciousness is linear. We experience one event after the other. Thus, the Archons did not have the ability to alter time until Max's consciousness enabled them to. Max had to arrive at that exact moment in time where he destroyed the machine, experience it himself in a linear fashion. And until he did, the Archons had no power to change history. They were constrained by Max's constraints. His limitations as a being were theirs as well. It's hard for us to comprehend because the Archons exist outside of time, and we do not. But essentially it boils down to this. Changing history is really a matter of changing consciousness. Through Max, they've achieved a tectonic shift in the underlying groove of the prism. Ian chewed for a moment. This was nothing like the time travel ideas out of his favorite sci-fi books and movies. Either the timeline was altered and everything snapped into place around it, or it simply couldn't be done. And this, well, this was somehow both at once. It is both at once, Enki smiled. You're familiar with quantum effects, Ian. Both at once is a key concept in that science. Schrodinger's cat is both alive and dead until observed. The timeline was both at once until the exact moment Max toppled the machine. This collapsed things around a new groove in the dream time and shattered the old one. And so now, here we are, in this place of sun and sand. But why are we even still alive? Casey asked, pulling her red Starland High hoodie over her head. Why don't they just go kill our grandparents or something? Make sure we never existed in the first place. Enki smiled. That's one thing they can't do. They can change history around us all they want, even kill our grandparents, as you say. But it wouldn't cause any of us to cease to exist. We are dreamers of the universe, too. Our consciousness protects us from any sort of temporal ripple effect like that. Remember again, altering a timeline is more a matter of altering consciousness. They would have to convince us to dream ourselves out of existence. And so here we are on a foreign beach, Sasha said, in a foreign timeline. We have absolutely no way of knowing what the Archons have done to everything. As he heard this, Max turned white like he was going to throw up. But Max, Enki said, addressing him now with a great deal of care in his eyes. Max, listen to me. You cannot hold yourself to blame. You did what you thought was right at every turn. 
You could not let those children suffer. But I screwed up time, Max gritted. Enki actually laughed a little and then grew more serious. No matter what the Archons do, however they trick us or manipulate us, our choices are the ones that matter. And the reasons behind those choices. Yours were good. Yours were sound. But how can you even fight an enemy that is so, I don't know, supernaturally clever? Max said, his voice choked with despair. One that's so manipulative. One that has plans within plans within plans. Ones that even cross outside of even time itself. How can we ever win? Enki smiled. Well, you can't escape the traps. It's useless to even try. They will always be far, far cleverer than we. But you can make choices based on who you are. You can only really lose if you are lost to yourself. They have no power other than that which we give them. In the end, they cannot win unless you surrender to them in your soul. You think the machine succeeded because a timeline can be altered? Enki laughed boisterously. No. The machine only succeeded if you fall into despair now, Max. Now. You can sit there miserable and feel like a failure. Or you can get up, dust yourself off, and keep making choices. The Archons are fear. They are despair. They feed on exactly what you're doing right now. The more helpless, alone, and filled with hatred you are, the more powerful they become. And only then will the machine, in truth, have achieved its purpose. You may think all of this has been a tragedy, a horrendous defeat, but I do not. We are more informed now than we've ever been, and that even includes me. Thanks to Casey, we now know what the Archons really are. And Max, well, Max knows more about his past than he ever has. Enki looked at Max and Casey with clear fondness in his eyes. Max and Casey, the two travelers, one journeying inwards, only to discover secrets that have eluded me for eons, and the other, traveling outwards, back into the past, unmasking his own secret at last. You may count this as a defeat, but I certainly do not. Ian tossed a twig into the fire. So, what do we do now? Enki looked at the two magicians, Casey, Max, Sasha, and Ian. Well, tonight, tonight, we sleep under the stars. Despite their best efforts, I think the Archons will not have been able to get rid of those jewels of the deeps. We will drink in the salty, hot night air, deep into our lungs, like ones who are alive, and enjoy being so. And tomorrow... Yes, tomorrow. Tomorrow we head that way. Enki indicated the tree line with a wave of his golden cane. Into the wilderness. Tomorrow we go and find out what the One has in store for us all. Here ends Max Quick, Book 2, The Two Travelers. But the story of Max Quick is far from over. It will be continued in Max Quick, Book 3, the Bane of the Bondsman, coming in 2009. This is Mark Jeffrey. I thank you all for listening and hope you enjoyed The Two Travelers. If you have enjoyed the Max Quick books, please tell all of your friends, and I hope you'll buy a copy of either the paperback version 
which can be found at maxquickseries.com, or the new iPhone App Store version, which can be found in iTunes under books, Max Quick Book 1, The Pocket Independent, and Max Quick Book 2 are now available for $5.99 in the iTunes iPhone App Store. Again, I thank you all for listening, and we'll talk soon. <laughs>